This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Building locations for city source books. Watergate-era horror films. Speed reading. And eldritch photographer William Mortensen. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, and the spool of blueprints unfolding across the table welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut on our spool of blueprints, we've got our power and sewer lines indicated by a dotted line. We've got our above ground <laughs> foundations indicated by a double solid line. And we've got a pile of city source books all the way from the city state of the Invincible Overlord on the bottom, good old Invincible Overlord, all the way up to the KN Players City Guide or City Players Guide, which is it, Robin? Right. Because there's no more basic, good old fashioned baseline RPG writing uh, than what I've uh, been working on at the moment, which is describing neighborhoods in an imaginary city, building by building. And that put me in mind, of course, uh, you and I, whenever we're working on things, we think, how can we turn these into segments? And I don't think we've talked about the process of populating uh, buildings in a in an RPG source book. Uh, Ken, have you mostly managed to wriggle out of out of this over the years? I've done my share, but I've managed to make them mostly existing cities. Cheating that way. Uh, the old research what the this old, building the is old rather than research make it method. Yes. So w when you're creating a city guide, then based on research on an actual city, uh, that has its own set of questions. You're not uh, necessarily deciding what this building is, although I'd imagine a lot of the times you can't find it out and you have to make it up. But let's say you do know that, okay, this was a jewelry store in 1926. What do you choose to write about in order to make that jewelry store leap out? And instead of just being an item in a guidebook that you found published in 1927, how do you make that into gameable material? What is it about that description that the game master needs and wants that writers should be including in the description? Um, for a real city, you don't necessarily go, and this is the advantage and the disadvantage of doing real cities is you're generally not going building by building by building by building. 
But let us take the jewelry store as the example. What you do is you look through that 1927, that putative guidebook and, or the, you know, the, the great world of, of other information about your city. And you're looking for a jewelry store with something out of the ordinary. Even either it is the best jewelry store in the city, the, the fanciest one. And so you can cite it that way. Or it has a, a robbery attached to it, perhaps. You could cite it that way. And then the other thing you're looking for, by and large for player purposes, is not list every jewelry store in their inventory, but you're trying to say, this is the fanciest jewelry store. It's in this part of town. Here's a thing. And then you're looking for the bad part of town with the pawn shops and the bad jewelry stores so that you can mention them down in the bad part of town right up so that the players have a gamut. You're not going necessarily building by building. What you're looking for is something about that jewelry store that either stands out or is something that is immediately usable in play, i.e. it is right next to a pawn shop and therefore is probably uh, run by a fence and, and bad people. And so you can use that to columnify the lovely people of 1926 who no doubt you know, didn't mean to build a jewelry store in a bad part of town, but now you've got a game to run so you can make unwarranted assumptions in uh, the write-up. And when it comes to a city that you are inventing, that I think creates a different genre expectation. First of all, there are a lot of GMs and players, although by no means all, who expect that part of play is going to be wandering around a neighborhood and you sit down a map and the players may go, well, what's at this location? And for perhaps not every single building, unless perhaps you're a city in the Forgotten Realms, uh, but many of them, you want to have an interesting answer. And so the question is, what is it that is interesting? And you uh, were talking about blueprints at the beginning. Uh, I'm the son of a draftsman, but I uh, did not pick up an interest in describing in minute detail all sorts of different architectural features. And that I think that as long as you have sort of a general uh, idea of the neighborhood of what most buildings are like and have one or two visual details you can supply that the players no longer expect, as was in the case in a lot of early supplements, a minute description of every single uh, room. Uh, sometimes you'll read like older city guides where the assumption seems to be that, oh, every single room in this whole city is basically a dungeon environment where you might need to burst in and kill someone. It's like, well, we're assuming for the sake of this discussion that it, instead this is it's not Cleveland. somewhere where you go and visit between beating up on people. But places should still be stories. Uh, there should be something when you, uh, if you bother to describe a place in more than one line, because of course you can just say average jewelry shop. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly acceptable because in many a city, there are a bunch of average jewelry shops. But if you are going to pay attention to something, it is the people in the building, uh, the people around the building, the feeling that it has uh, that generates story. And one way to, to ask yourself how to describe a building is, well, what interesting thing can happen here and how can it involve uh, the adventurers it doesn't have to be something that suddenly comes out of nowhere grabs onto you becomes a new thing that dictates the entire uh, course of play instead you can just sort of suggest here's a circumstance under which the player characters might decide to come here and here's what might happen and here's the person they'll talk to and here's how to play them and uh, that is enough to go on to allow the game master to kind of figure, uh, you know, that this is not just sort of a static environment that you don't know what to do with, but rather here's all of these suggestions, possibilities for events that could happen in and around this building in the course of play. Yeah, the um, I, I guess sort of in the 
modern settings, the, the sort of the uh, ultimate version of every room is an adventure becomes something like Spreckenhalter Stella from the old Top Secret, where literally every room was an adventure because the whole I, I forget if it was a small town or a neighborhood in, in, in a larger city like Berlin, but every room literally did have someone who wanted to kill you in it. That was the whole point. And then you can go as far out as a, uh, a description of a, uh, a modern day city like uh, Chicago in um, Deadlands Noir, in which I did only describe the sort of standout locations and say, this is Al Capone's headquarters. And this is a nightclub where this sort of thing happens. And you can give enough sort of general examples. If it's say a a setting that's not familiar to the players that they get the sense that, Oh, there's a lot of jazz clubs in this city, but you don't have to necessarily have every jazz club be a story, but the big jazz club should have a story and it should probably, and this is where maybe we're moving into something aside from mere reporting, it should probably tie thematically into whatever the reason this, the city is a city of adventure. So in Deadlands Noir, the reason Chicago is a city of adventures, of course, it's chock-a-block with gangsters. So every place has to sort of refract that world a little bit in uh, say a, a great city book, like the Arkham city book for Chaosium, which does in fact, pixel bitch down to individual buildings. I think every building in Arkham is on the note there somewhere on the key. Some of the buildings are just normal buildings, but many of the buildings have a mythos secret because first of all, that's true to Lovecraft that pretty much every building probably did have a mythos secret in Arkham. And also it's the point of call of Cthulhu that the mythos is omnipresent and is filtering up, especially in places like Arkham. If you were to do a city book in call of Cthulhu for Cairo or London or New York, or Chicago, a bigger city, you would not necessarily go down to the individual building level and you would still cover things that other visitors to the city would need for other reasons. So the British, uh, the London source book, book, bookhounds and the London, the original London guidebook for Call of Cthulhu have things like the British Museum in it, even though they, those may not be mythos locations. There are still places that player characters are going to want to go and, and have adventures and find things out. And so you're providing sort of two layers if you think of it as a as a graphics file you've got your layer that is the the adventure layer and then the layer above that that is the other things you might do in the city layer and both of those layers are there but i think the adventure layer is is always going to be the or should always be the most prominent one because as you say the the setting is about story it's not about just listing buildings right and if buildings are stories what a story does is it changes over time it goes from a point a to uh, point B to point C. And if you've ever uh, lived in a city, you uh, know that your place you live is in a perpetual state of change, and that change somehow reflects the broader history of the region and what is going on in the in the city and cities in general. And neighborhoods uh, go up and down. And so ask yourself, what is the change that is happening to the city, and how does that change affect what the uh, player characters are going to experience. So in a version of Arkham, I think you'd want to shoot, uh, as with any uh, role-playing environment, not for something that is static, that has achieved a state of equilibrium that no one is ever going to mess with, which surprisingly a lot of designers design their settings for, but rather one where a change is happening and that change matters on the level that interacts with the player characters and their core activity. of uh, So if you are an investigator in Arkham, you will start to notice all of the signs that 
what happens in a Lovecraftian place? That place decays. Mm-hmm. It's in a state of entropy. It is being uh, devoured and becoming less rational, and the angles are, are shifting. And so each building you look at, okay, a jewelry store. Okay, well, how is this jewelry store getting worse? How is this reflecting the decay of the cosmos? So it may just be that the whole neighborhood is, is worse, and the quality of the merchandise is obviously uh, shoddy compared to the the signage and what it might indicate or indeed you know to get in a more plot hooky direction oh one of those gems looks like a trapehedron and oh all of the other gems are starting to look like trapehedrons and so uh whatever um, even trying to say trapehedron is very dangerous fox don't that's don't right yeah. It at home. yeah leave out a syllable for um uh, for elijah like they exactly. say exactly and so whatever you're looking at the question is how did how did the change what is the change affecting the city and how is this change manifested in this place? It might simply be, well, uh, the old owner whose picture is up on the wall is no longer running the place. And uh, he looks, photograph of him, he looks nice and uh, starched and, and respectable. Uh, but the new person, they, they sort of have weird goggling eyes. And uh, uh, that might prompt, therefore, the adventurer to say, hey, what, what happened to the previous owner? And uh, the uh, current owner might say, boating accident. And there you go. There's a something that is either a little detail that reinforces the theme or, in fact, a plot hook that inspires you to go and find out uh, what exactly happened to him on that boat. Or then you can ask about the gems or you can just have your transaction move on having gotten that little bit of uh, color that reinforces the theme. And adding these kinds of thematic developments. Um, and again, you can either present the individual jewelry shop as a as as a, a a thing in motion, or you can present a series of snapshot jewelry shops from the brand new jewelry shop just opened with hope and outside capital all the way to the oldest jewelry shop in the city where the it's uh, not necessarily the jewelry shop has become shabby and awful, but the clients themselves have become shabby and awful because of course, rich people in Arkham, no doubt decay morally rather than necessarily having to decay physically. And so you have, a continuum in, in possible different sorts of, of story. And then in terms of looking at sort of the underlying themes or elements of the story of the world, uh, poking up um, and made manifest by urban geography, we sort of covered that in episode 81, where we talked about adding psychogeography to an imaginary city. And you can do the same thing when you're designing your city source book, sort of, you know, going uh, top to bottom instead of bottom to top, you can say, well, I need a uh, a place that uh, reaches down into the memory of, of uh, all the, uh, the, the murders, the great battle that happened here. What sort of place would be good for that? If you're dealing with an imaginary city, you could, you don't, you're not stuck with a given location. And so you can say, I think it would be good if that's where the, the big, uh, uh, butcher market is in the city where they, they drive in the cattle from outside and they all get slaughtered here in this district. And so I'm going to put the slaughterhouse district or the, the equivalent of Smithfield market, the meat market district. Uh, I'm going to put it on the place where the, where the, the old massacres happened or, or whatever. And so by building that in, the story is that, um, it's a meat market. There's a lot of, of toughs going around who are professional animal slaughterers. And so they have, they're all carrying knives and they're covered in welters of gore. And yeah, this would be a great place for the, the, the magic murderer club to hang out is because they uh, can move around uh, without being picked on for carrying knives and being covered in welters of gore. But they're also connected to a psychogeographic 
uh, location. And so the, um, uh, the change doesn't have to be continuous. It can be sort of d- discreet or stochastic where you have a thing that happened and then that thing is happening again. And so it's not a, a, uh, a slow curve. It's a series of, of snapshots and the snapshot just happens to be being taken right when your player characters are in the city. Right. And when it comes to connecting things together, in addition to connecting things to the history of the city and especially the change that it's undergoing now, also you probably have other chapters in your city book. Uh, or in your notes of your homegrown city and look for ways to connect locations to other categories of uh, things that you've laid out so that uh, if you have, you know, you've established who the prominent people are in town, well, this butchering ground happens to be owned by this noble who has this particular uh, desire, you know, maybe he owns the land and he gave permission to one butcher and all of a sudden it's sprouted into six butchers and he's, uh, things are getting out of hand, and he wants uh, someone to come in and, and uh, drive a bunch of them out back into the worst part of town. Or he's gotten a bid to redevelop the, the butcher lands that he's happily leased for decades, and now he uh, he wants to drive them all out. Well, that gives you not only a plot hook, but a plot hook that connects to something else that you've described in your city and gives the player characters another way in because maybe that they know that noble. Uh, either because they like him and might want to do his bidding, for example, going and intimidating a bunch of butchers, or they dislike that noble and want to make trouble for him, and they're going to go and intimidate the people that he sent to intimidate the butchers. So uh, go out and add a level of uh, sort of holistic connection between all of the different uh, things that you feel are worth describing about your city. And that is where you start talking about factions and people that live in the city. And once you've got factions, then you're going to want to go back and find all those locations. You didn't tie into anything and say, how is this jewelry shop related to the fact that we have the murder cult and the jerk nobles and whatever else? And are they part of this ongoing human story? And of course they have to be because you've taken the trouble to describe them. So they must be important enough to be involved in the storyline. And uh, once we've got everything tied up in a neat storyline, or not a neat one, but one that you can develop and play, I think it's time for us to abandon this particular city, which may or may not be imaginary, and uh, head to, uh, I don't know, let's say a drive-in. The second edition of Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. Yes, indeed, we're headed to the drive-in yet again, but this time around it was kind of a pain because we had to 
wait in a long line at the gas station and uh, the prices have gone up when we get into the drive-in. Yes, it's the outdoor cinema hut. Yes, we're returning to uh, Horror Essentials. This is part eight of our continuing series. But now it is the early 70s, a time of despond, a time of malaise, a time of the hangover from the 60s. All of the, the summer of love has turned into a a fall of uh, despair and especially uh, one of corruption and disillusion because uh, the uh, Watergate scandal is unfolding against the background of all of these uh, films that we're going to talk about this uh, segment. But um, neat political metaphors uh, go a cropper because the first film I want to talk about is from Italy. Mario Baba is back again uh, with a horror, not necessarily essential, but important historical landmark which is A Bay of Blood from 1971. This is a sort of cottage country giallo. The putative subject matter of the film is uh, people murdering each other in weird giallo fashion over the ownership of, of a building, a, a, a cottage. But there is a, yeah. a sequence in it uh, that sort of comes out of nowhere, is essentially irrelevant, except it's a Rovira series of scenes where a bunch of Sexually liberated college students uh, show up to party at uh, a particular cottage and uh, they get it on. And then a uh, horrific and for Mario Brava, suddenly graphic gore effect murders occur. And basically this little segment of it, this uh, dumb show, is a preview of every teen slasher film that will infest drive-ins much later in the, uh, about, a, about a decade later. And so this is... You know, he does Friday the 13th in about 12 minutes and then moves on back to what he was going to do before. Right. The the Friday the 13th is just a scum on the wave of this film. Uh, it's Bava, so of course it's gorgeously shot, although in this case the gorgeousness uh, definitely has an accent on gore. It doesn't make any sense, which is how you can tell it's a giallo, really. And as you as you point out, a lot of the emotional effect of the movie is the sort of arbitrary nature of violence. And I think that Bava is definitely feeling a little of the Romero uh, heat uh, by this time and, and saying, well, I can be more arbitrary than any American. And uh, it goes on and proves it. Bay of Blood, I think you're right. I don't think that you necessarily say that it is a cinematic masterpiece. It's not an A-list Bava, but I think it's definitely, you know, worth watching because it's going to sort of define not just the, the the shape of Giallo, but also, to a very large extent, the shape that Giallo takes when it does get imported into America by John Carpenter. So worth watching in many respects. And I think you are going to have to cover Sisters by Brian De Palma, because that is a movie that I have not seen, despite it being from early good Brian De Palma and not late terrible Brian De Palma. Right. So set us up, seven, 1972. Right. So uh, this is... Our first postmodern horror movie. We've had lot, we've had remakes and reboots before, but uh, De Palma, and as as you correctly state, this is from the early part of his career when, in fact, he was very interesting and innovative. And there are two things going on. One is that his uh, style is overtly experimental, so this uses a lot of split screen. It uh, seems very jagged and fresh in its style, and it is taking Hitchcock, a whole bunch of different ideas from Hitchcock and turning them into essentially American giallo, and also adding a level of political commentary and distrust of institutions that reflects the Watergate era, that uh, reflects a vaguely sort of lefty uh, perspective on culture from the, the 70s. 
Uh, this is, has Margot Kidder. Uh, she plays formerly conjoined uh, twins. Uh, there's someone who witnesses a murder. Charles Durning in it is in it as a sinister figure. Speaking of Hitchcock, Bernard Herrmann uh, does the score. So it uh, uses a little bit of rear window, a little bit of that. It's got uh, Brian De Palma's sort of uh, stylistic mix master, but he still has something to say. Later, De Palma is just purely about manipulating the elements of cinema. And once he uh, stops caring about having a theme is when uh, he runs out of steam. But this is the beginning of his uh, career, and he is sort of a, a precursor of our next segment because he's one of the uh, the new auteurs who comes in and uh, changes the face of horror. And like everybody in the American New Wave, he is responding to past Hollywood films uh, from the point of view of a film student. And his film is about film, uh, particularly the films of Hitchcock, as much as it is about reality. So I'm going to uh, leave you then to throw something that we've both seen a lot and talked about a lot. We've almost we've basically given it its own segment a couple of times. <laughs> right, yeah. But speaking of flower power gone wrong, it's like the flowers are hungry, Ken. They need food. Well, what they need, Robin, is they need a proper appreciation by a neo-pagan in a skirt because it is The Wicker Man we're talking about, directed by Robin Hardy in 1973 based on a mediocre novel. And I'm saying mediocre at best, but somehow... He pulls out the uh, the core of that book and turns it into a cinematic extravaganza is almost too small a word for the Wicker Man. It is over the top in every way, but none of that does anything to mitigate the central paranoia and the central terror and the central inversion, I guess you could say, at, at the core of the film. We've talked about it in the folk horror segment. We've talked about it probably, we, we could put the Wicker Man in every segment from now till the end of the podcast, probably. That's how fecund it is thematically, but it's Edward Woodward is a cop. He is uh, lured to an island off Scotland that mysteriously has beautiful weather for growing apples and other fruit. He discovers that the whole island is a neo-pagan cult run by Christopher Lee's Lord Summer Isle. And while searching for a missing girl, he stumbles on a bigger truth in between beautiful, crazy, rancid hippie songs and a undulating Brit Eklund and so much more. Morris dancing. There's terrifying Morris dancing. Terrifying Morris dancing. Every bit of this movie is great. There's a million different cuts. There has finally been, a, I think, an acceptable uh, director's cut, the special edition or whatever they call it, that they uncovered uh, some of the lost footage from and, and cobbled together. Uh, it's it's worth watching and just in dumbfounded joy that somehow in 1973, there was room for the Wicker Man to come out. It's, uh, it's an all-time masterpiece of horror. I, I suppose some part of me says it's not quite, you know, Night of the Hunter in terms of an all-time masterpiece of film, but it is so essential for watching to get what horror is and can be that I almost, you know, I would definitely put it up there with, with Halloween or Dracula or any of the other essentials. It's an essential essential. And it also almost by itself founded a whole subgenre, the folk horror subgenre that we talked about. Right. And it's a great example of slow burn horror because it's not one where the protagonist played by Edward Woodward is under a knuckle ratcheting suspense the entire way through. It's an investigative horror uh, scenario uh, waiting to happen. He's a cop. And uh, looking into the uh, disappearance, so it's very much up the uh, the gumshoe uh, trail. But a lot of it is, is to do with its uh, atmosphere and its use of character study. So it, it's not uh, a high jeopardy horror movie, but sort of a 
a moral Jeopardy uh, horror, uh, and uh, and of course has a famous a big finish with a brilliant uh, visual image, and of course is eminently stealable uh, for your uh, scenarios at home. I uh, ran one for you and the Paul Grain gang a few years back that was uh, a Brexit-themed uh, revisitation uh, to the uh, work. I know, and, it's and, always you, and fun. you somehow got the title wrong. It's fun when you're running this and the uh, the Wicker figure first appears. That's always a a, a great moment when uh, horror fans are in the in the group. Exactly, I, and I guess when we're when we're talking about moral horror, there is no more moral horror than William Friedkin's The Exorcist from 1973. Uh, we talked about the Satan film and the witch film already uh, existing. This is the one that makes it a box office. Uh, the Exorcist blows the doors off the box office, and it is, of course, the story of a titular exorcist. Not only that, it didn't just blow up the the box office; it blew up the culture. It was an, an incredible. A cultural phenomenon in its time, and it just became a, a huge deal to the point where I am not sure uh, if the kids today looking at The Exorcist Cold are going to experience it in its full grinding sense of despair and menace, the way that William Friedkin's uh, skill as a director allowed it to do, or that you kind of had to be there in the 70s to fully appreciate it, whether this has been eclipsed by other things that have stolen its shtick or not. I'm a little too young to have seen it in first run. And I think also it depends on part of you thinking that possibly the devil is real because on the, if it's more about atmosphere than about a big elaborate story, it is about, you know, basically a, a, a demon possession case and the attempts of a Catholic exorcist to get the demon out of the little girl played by uh, uh, Linda Blair uh, but it is definitely one about it's about atmosphere and moral vertigo uh, more than it is about a, a series of obstacles being overcome as it is in a more typical horror film. Yeah, um, I will say that when they uh, did the the new cut that was the extended director's cut and then they restored it and re-released it, I saw it in the theater and it worked. Admittedly, uh, as you say, I am of the generation that was old enough to be into The Exorcist in 1973. I buy, uh, at least for the uh, period of, of a film, the, the presence of a devil and the possibility of it. Um, I certainly don't think you have to believe in vampires for uh, Let the Right One In to work. So I think that believing in the devil for two hours, uh, you'll get a great deal of charge out of The Exorcist. And... Yeah, you're right. A lot of its bits have been stolen very comprehensively. But if we're starting off this segment by saying, watch Nosferatu, a film that has been stolen so comprehensively that almost none of it is left, I, I think you also have to say, watch The Exorcist. There are things that happen in that movie. There are things Friedkin does with shadow and with light, with just the pure, almost the silent film qualities that Murnau was working with that are 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 amazing and, hor and horripilating, that they will... Uh, have a, a an effect on you unless you're going in as a dead-souled Philistine, in which case, why are you even listening to this segment? Just skip ahead to the dead-souled Philistine. Right. Hype. And it's absolutely an essential and uh, changed the broader culture and mm -hmm. uh, initiated an entire wave of Satan movies, that which uh, Rosemary's Baby, of course, precedes it. But this is the one that kicked all that up into high gear and I think really speaks to its time period uh, in a particular way. And the horror revolution that's going to follow would not exist without the box office success of this film. It was probably the biggest hit since the original wave of thirties universal um, movies were giant hits in their day. And it made 
uh, horror a, a box office concern. But from the box office, we're going to go to a, a beautiful masterpiece, an art house horror film, uh, one of subjectivity and uh, doubt and ambiguity and atmosphere. And that is uh, Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue from 1973 with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. Uh, they are a couple who are mourning the death of a child and go to uh, Venice where reality begins to sort of shift around on them. And uh, there's a, a person with dwarfism and a knife, if there is a person at all, or if there is a knife at all, it is a uh, sort of an elusive, elusive, um, menacing, beautiful masterpiece. Yeah, it's uh, if I, I guess you could say that horror films occasionally ask the question, what if you made another emotion so powerful that your only response was horror? And with this, uh, with Don't Look Now, grief is that emotion, and it is made so powerful in the film that the response is horror. Rogue, of course, also uh, famously does a lot of playing with time and uh, editing and cutting things in Don't Look Now, so that amplifies that sort of dream quality that you that you mentioned. It'll knock you uh, knock you for a loop when you see it. Uh, I watched it very recently for the first time on the Criterion uh, disc, and it was uh it was a a gut grabber even again despite pretty much knowing what was going to happen because of course i'd read books about the history of horror film but just what rogue is able to do you know in in this case with the time signatures of the film is is very very powerful and of course the the acting uh especially by julie christie but in as well by donald sutherland really conveys that that notion that grief has left them so un unmanned as to become inhuman in some way and thus open to vectors of horror that would not ordinarily be open. And there's just a lot of really great horror atmosphere in it. Even if it didn't end in the beautifully modernist way that it does end, just the, the, the individual set pieces when you don't really know what's happening are, are themselves terrifying. So it's a, it's a great sort of mosaic of a movie and it's well worth watching and a horror essential, if not a, you know, sort of uh, let's chase after each other with knives and vampires uh, horror essential, such as our next film chasing after each other with, with uh, bladed weapons is the literal raison d'etre of Tobe Hooper's immortal masterpiece, the Texas chainsaw massacre uh, from 1974. This I think is sort of the, the opening gun of what you were talking about, Robin, the new auteurs. And it's certainly not Tobe Hooper's fault that he got trampled to death in the eighties. Uh, by the by the mad rush but he is the first of the of the of the great uh, garage horror filmmakers in America and uh Texas Chainsaw based vaguely on the career of Ed Gein just as Psycho is is as unpsycho a movie as you can imagine despite having almost the same plot right to the extent that there is a plot it's yeah, here. right yeah people go to a, a scary house scary house is inhabited by uh cannibals and those cannibals then give chase but uh, you would think that that is just the description of any stupid slasher movie, but it is the way that it is shot, the sense that this isn't just, uh, you know, another hillbilly cannibal movie, although there weren't a lot of them at that point, except <laughs> for some Herschel Gordon Lewis things, but that this is the end of the world, that this really is apocalyptic. And I was hoping that we'd be able to discuss it in the context of last uh, week's apocalyptic horrors, uh, but it is the, the uh, horrible sense, not just of menace and panic, but of dread that... Uh, Hooper never really managed to uh, top again. Uh, but this is uh, 
an, an elevated version of something that is uh, usually sort of uh, grimy and inconsequential, but here uh, it suggests something uh, almost entirely cosmic. Yeah, it's it's very much the notion that this family of, of murder cannibals is society, that society has become this somehow, that the act of taking that wrong turn in Texas leads you to the end of the world is very present in the film. And it's made present entirely by the unflinching willingness of Hooper to show not the sort of consequences in the sense of chopped up flesh. When you watch it post slasher explosion, you'll be kind of surprised at how little chopping up there is in Chainsaw Massacre, but the degree to which apocalypse is impressed on the the characters is very powerful. And, And Hooper does not look away from the emotional damage any more than he looks away from the, the physical damage being done. It, it's a, it, it's, it's a real, it's really a great film. It's not just a first of the, it's not just a great four, a, a movie that was made for 30 grand or whatever. Um, it is a great film. The results are great. It is an example of what, you know, sort of the auteur theory is, is meant to say that one director with a vision can impress that on celluloid somehow and, and make it happen if they're very good. And, uh, it's, it, it, it's well worth watching. All the rest of them, of course, are, are terrible for one or another reason, but this is, uh, this is a standalone and it is essential. And I'm going to have you go back to Italy, Ken, to, uh, start discussing our final item in this segment. Right. We go back to Italy. And since we're in 1975, we are here for the first great film by Dario Argento. Not the last time he will appear in this series, but this is his greatest giallo. Um, it is Deep Red, Profondo Rosso, and it is a movie that uh, very much inspired uh, Francis Ford Coppola, as did Bay of Blood from the top of the series. And this is in which Argento begins to do the thing that makes Argento Argento, where he says, isn't film just a series of emotional impacts from a scene? Do we need anything else? And although there is sort of a plot about a black-gloved killer, it is really about the individual sequences, which are tied together not so much by an ongoing story or by character development as by a similar camera look and by a creepy score by the band Goblin. And the way that Argento sort of creates this this kaleidoscope of horror is something that he will come back to uh, even more successfully. But this is an example of, uh, an example of uh, I would say almost the purest of Giallo, right? That it's so little about anything except for the scenes uh, and the scenes of death, especially that trying to sort of parse uh, a plot out of it is, is, is a weakness that critics fall to. And then that Argento will fall to later on in his own career, where he stops having belief in his own vision and starts trying to tell a story, which is never a good idea, Dario. Don't do it. Well, I think what people are talking about uh, when they talk about it, wanting to have a plot, is that they want it to not have 50 to 60 minutes of absolute garbage filmmaking (laughs) in uh, juxtaposition with the uh, scenes of sadistic murder. That Argento is, uh, and all of his films are this way, Uh, we're going to, each time he mentions them, I will briefly describe this. Uh, His films are generally equal parts brilliant and incompetent awful. Average those two things together, you get average. His films almost always start out uh, amazingly and then uh, peter out to no particular effect at the end. I would think a great filmmaker would have to be able to do an ending. That would be nice. 
And it's also uh, his sense of uh, production design, especially in this one, these uh, gigantic sort of Giorgio Chirico landscapes that the uh, characters are uh, often in. This one has David Hemming in it uh, to supply unmotivated characterization and to participate in the previously mentioned 50 to 60 minutes of meaningless uh, banter and nonsense. The things that are great about Argento are uh, definitely effective. I think the people who love Argento remember those and miss all the garbage. They edit that out later. And there's also the unmistakable sense that Argento identifies with the killer and the enjoying the cruelty, physical cruelty and the emotional humiliation that the victims uh, go through that is not unique in horror, certainly. It's a big thread in the, the whole slasher uh, trend, but I think it's uh, uh, particularly noticeable uh, with Argento and definitely uh, noticeable in this one as well. So you, uh, you need to know Argento in order to know uh, horror, but uh, you also have my personal permission to recognize that his uh, work is all average uh, when it comes to it. And, and just wait until uh, next episode where we really get into it. On that um, uh, ambivalent note, uh, I guess we will shut down the drive-in, chase out the parked teens, and get ready to come back again, back to the year 1975, where we are going to talk about horror auteurs, beginning with the greatest of them all. Where we're going to need a bigger hut. And we are going to need a bigger hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's armor shops well-stocked by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like... The Molten Sulfur Blog. David Mascari. Fred Kish. Jeremy French. And John Kingdon. Once more, the walls of the hut are foggy and indistinct. We hear a black cat howling on the moor. There's a gray alien and a Nordic alien enjoying a delicious kombucha over at the table. That's how you can tell they're aliens. They're enjoying kombucha. Uh, because we're in the Elliptony hut, that most ill-defined of huts. And in the Elliptony hut, it looks like, what's what's going on over there? It's just someone reading a book. Oh, man, they're reading that book pretty fast. I wonder if that's a crazy book. Let's hope so. Because we are talking about the mother of American speed reading, Evelyn Wood, uh, where I think uh, you have to be Robbins and my age to remember the 
omnipresent ads for the Evelyn Wood speed reading course on TV, uh, because as uh, Robin is about to explicate, Evelyn Wood was a huckster, a huckster, Robin, not our genuine educator at all. Yes, she was. She was in the grand tradition of good old fashioned American apple pie hucksters. Uh, so you're going to initially go speed reading, even if that's fake. Why is it leptonic? And uh, what I want to get into as, as we discuss this is how when you have elliptonic eyes, when you've studied the uh, history of the paranormal, you see a lot of uh, parallels begin to crop up. And perhaps one might have been skeptical a little sooner. So I always kind of thought, you know, speed reading was possibly a thing. But it turns out, nope, it's not a thing. It's a hoax. <laughs> So Evelyn Wood uh, was born in 1909. She grew up in Utah. She's uh, LDS from the Latter-day Saints Church. And part of that grand tradition of uh, go-getterism and uh, getting on board the American dream that is uh, very much part of that culture. And uh, she and her husband, Doug, after spending some time in uh, pre-war Nazi Germany, uh, shepherding the uh, members of the Mormon church there who the policy of the church at that time was to uh, uh, try and make nice uh, with the regime in order to protect their faith and their people there. They came back when the, when the war began. And as soon as it became apparent that there was a market for it, they switched their story a bit. So it became more dramatic and more about escaping uh, persecution. And it's that sense of uh, not letting reality get in the way of theatrical presentation that was very much a part of uh, Evelyn Wood's Reading Dynamics program, uh, which was a, basically a franchise where you would go and learn to read uh, 25,000 words a minute. And can you and I, as writers, know how long it takes to write 25,000 words? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can you can certainly read faster than you can write, but yes. 25,000 words a minute would uh, would be... Let us say it would it would strain credibility. Yes. I'm a fast reader. You're a faster reader. We've hung out and read books in the same room. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual reliable tested maximum of how fast anyone could read is, is 900 words. Some people have a condition called hyperlexia, which enables them to sort of take in a page as a whole and sort of assimilate it. So there are a very few natural uh, speed readers, uh, but in general, people can't read 25,000 words a minute, and they certainly can't read it with increased comprehension, which was the claim of reading dynamics. It sort of sprawled out and became a, a franchise not only uh, across the U.S., but across the world. They had pretty expensive classes that you would go to in person. It was uh, primarily a, a correspondence course, and it went on for decades. They sold out early, uh, the Woods, and made uh, $20,000 a year as consultants, Evelyn did, while uh, a succession of different corporate-owned companies uh, took it over. And it went even into the beginnings of the internet age. So it was a big cultural deal. People thought it was real and uh, would very skillfully leveraged her connections to uh, particularly U.S. senators a long list of them took the course and claimed that it worked. Most notably, uh, William Proxmire, who uh, 70s science fiction fans will remember as the dread nemesis of NASA and the space mm -hmm. program. Yep. He continued to claim that it worked and, and endorsed it for many years and did not take money for his endorsement. Wood took pains to indicate that Jack Kennedy was a, uh, a speed reader and kind of leaving you with the impression that he had learned to be a speed reader through Evelyn Wood, which he had not. Uh, but there is a tape of the secret taping system in the White House 
of Kennedy giving Ted Kennedy hassles for not doing well enough in his Evelyn Wood course. At this point, I should mention that all of these details come from the book Scan Artist by Marcia Biederman, which is a really well done and like um, great nonfiction is a great social history as well as a, a history of this particular uh, all-American uh, scam. Among the companies that owned uh, Reading Dynamics at one point starting in 1967 is Famous Artists, which is another uh, somewhat scammy company that was co-founded by Norman Rockwell. So <laughs> talk about your all-American apple, apple pie hooksterism. The idea of Famous Artists was that uh, they give you the impression that if you sent in your drawings and sketches, that famous artists like Norman Rockwell would critique your work and improve it. Spoiler, <laughs> that did not occur. So the thing about speed reading is that there's no basis for it whatsoever. Wood claimed that she developed this by watching her professor quickly read her dissertation and glean the meaning from it and assign a mark to it in front of her eyes. And then she was inspired by that. She says she went on for a couple of years to watch other people who read fast in order to come up with her method that would teach people to read 25,000 words a minute. You will note that she is not a scientist. She is not a linguist. And you might also think, if you know your professors, uh, that possibly he knew what was in the dissertation. He kind of knew what grade he was going to assign. And uh, maybe he skimmed it in front yeah, of her eyes. Could have yeah, been. That's what happened. Could have been a skim. Who can say? So there's considerable showmanship in making people believe by putting forward young uh, apple-cheeked men and women to demonstrate this. You had to go to demonstrations in order to see it. It was all about the in-person. It was all about the showmanship. And uh, so, for example, uh, and what you would, what they would do is they would, part of speed reading, of course, is you preview the text, Ken. And what a preview is is you turn the book over in your hands for a few minutes before you start reading it, and you perhaps look at the back cover text. Hmm. Mm, maybe hmm. even the, the text on the inside gatefolds as you're, you know, sort of communing with the book somehow and something that's starting to seem somewhat mystical and something that's described as anything but mystical. And then, of course, they flip through it. And uh, so, for example, on the Art Link Letter show, the demonstrator that they had there read a uh, famous novel, The Agony and the Ex Ecstasy, uh, about uh, Renaissance uh, painting. And uh, he knew enough about painting in Europe to be able to sort of bluff through a, uh, a rough summation of it. There was another demonstration where they had someone read a new novel and claim to give the plot on that. The author of the novel is part of the segment. The author of the novel does not correct the woman when he, she completely misdescribes the plot of his book because, <laughs> hey, <laughs> national television. Right. And if it sounds good, why not? The, the money's already spent. Yeah, the, um, the world of Evelyn Wood's speed reading, I think it's sort of winds up having a lot of weird little tentacles that go a lot of weird little places. I mean, I know that Robert Heinlein was a big believer in speed reading as a sort of a, a, a para technical thing that you could teach people to do. And that is part of uh, his sort of future history that is sort of um, uh, advanced. Good guys were all speed readers and, and had speed reading power. And I'm wondering if, if speed reading comes out of that, sort of um, Dean Drive Dianetics Campbell pseudoscience world at all, or if it just luckily fell into it because it was big in the 60s when all that was big anyway. Um, this almost sort of predates that. It's a little earlier and I think is an yeah. influence on it and is definitely part of the American cult of self-improvement. And that's something that uh, uh, LDS folk are all about. 
and uh, something she was all about. And so you start to see that whole sort of ubermenchy thing kind of creep in, in that the method is just you, you move your finger in a sort of an S pattern across the pages as you quickly uh, flip through them. And basically, you're supposed to overcome the books with an act of will. And so the <laughs> there are many books that you do have to overcome with an act of will, Robin. That's yes, not wrong. Skimming books. <laughs> <laughs> is a valuable skill. And so, in fact, like other ideologies of the 20th century, speed reading can't fail. It can only be failed. Uh, so, for example, you're, you're told, uh, because, of course, students would show up and try and do this thing that didn't work and therefore wouldn't be able to improve their reading very much. And they were told things such as, young lady, if there is any doubt in your mind about ultimate success, I promise you that you will fail. You must have perfect confidence in yourself. And the student manual says, you must have a desire to try and the will to succeed. So I don't know where else triumphing over wills uh, comes in, but <laughs> right. uh, who can say, yes, um, uh, you just have to believe hard enough. And then, then that will all work out for you said, right. Everybody. And so here's where the leptonic parallels start to come in is that, you know, this is a sort of crypto cultic, right? That being told that you just have to try harder and believe in yourself in order to accept our ideology and come out with our magic power at the end is, very much cultic thinking. The fact that you're being charged heavily to do it also <laughs> fits that pattern. And as in many of these situations, that the it doesn't take decades for skeptics to show up because, of course, there's all sorts of people who are academic experts in language and reading and cognition, and they look at this and go, hey, wait a minute, can I see your work? Can I test your subjects? And, of course, Wood would say, oh, no, you can't possibly test reader comprehension, except in cases where people did test it and thought that it was good, in which case she would trumpet those results. And so, like uh, all sorts of people who are uh, promoting paranormal claims, she said that the real problem is that the skeptics were closed-minded and unable to understand something revolutionary, and that any test made by another person to test your comprehension can only test a very narrow range of the many things you may get out of the material. And they go on, uh, here's where things are really getting mystical, uh, there's no meaning on any printed page. Meaning exists only in people. And so, Ken, I'm sure as a writer, you know that nothing that you write has any meaning, but sometimes meaning goes into people somehow. Yeah, I mean, that's basically my my approach is just to fill the, the space with words that will um, trigger the inner meaning that already existed in you. It's, it's, it's actually a real time saver once you figure it out. Yeah. And so, in fact, this does take on a, a distinct mystical tinge when people start to try and rationalize why it is that they're not really understanding the books that they're reading. And so people started to think that the books would then come onto them later in a full sort of ecstatic experience. One person uh, described the experience of writing a book set in a Venezuelan rainforest. And then later, all at once, I was living that story. I was walking around among the characters. Even now, if I let myself go, I can hear the flames crackling and feel the heat as that child burns in the treetops. And another person woke up going, oh, my God, I'm on fire. And young girls who were taking the course would wake up in the middle of the night. They felt they'd fallen into the content of the novel. So essentially, speed reading starts to become essentially a kind of a, a hollow deck that you uh, fall into and have this sort of ecstatic visionary experience, except it's, it's a book that you've convinced yourself that you've read. And this is where we then transition into scenarios and ways to fit this into fiction. Because of course, what is it that someone might read and not initially understand, but later 
uh, have it come onto them in the fullest nature and then begun to have strange visionary experiences that begin to melt uh, reality? Well, could it be the king in yellow? Mm-hmm. Could it be? Or could the notion that uh, the meaning is in yourself and merely activated by the words be a uh, another possibility where you have words that are the, the, the classical fnords from Illuminatus trilogy that appear only to send meaning and activate that inner understanding, that illumination in you, rather than to convey orthodox meaning by uh, by their position in a sentence or whatever else. And so what speed reading does is it opens you to the to the invisible or occulted uh, message of, of a book. And if you speed read, you know, some boring old novel about uh, Michelangelo, yeah, you'll just fake it on television. But if you speed read a book that is written by, you know, I don't know, Strindberg or Hoismans or one of the other decadents, then you have uh, a, a moment of transmission into your soul and you're opened up to the the powers of the of the Yellow King or whatever other malign entity is out there inspiring those works in the first place, that this uh, semiotic charge is transmitted unconsciously by the author and received unconsciously by the reader. Uh, but if you read it with your uh, third eye open, with your speed reading eye open, uh, making that uh, S pattern on the page uh, with a with a ritual mudra, then yeah, the, the you'll 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 open it up, and it's it's not so much about reading the book fast; it's about reading the book uh, deeply, right? The 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 true truth, the uh, the occult truth, is opened up by that. Yeah, because true reading comprehension can never be measured. Uh, it may, in fact, be that the way to propagate the King in Yellow or the Necronomicon uh, without getting it immediately stomped on by the authorities or the uh, Armitage Commission is to rearrange all of the uh, words in them, uh, sprinkle them through four or five anodyne 50s bestsellers. And then when you read them all in the right order, uh, zingo, they all come together and you wake up feeling in bed that you're on fire. Uh, so there's uh, all sorts of things that you can investigate. There could be uh, weird things afoot. And the thing that you find out is that, that connect them is that everybody has taken a speed reading course. Or it could be that you're trying to find the force that is putting these books out into the world, uh, hoping that speed readers... Uh, will uh, uh, fall upon them. Uh, another possibility, of course, is that the whole point of a uh, fictional equivalent of reading dynamics is to identify the very few people who are hyperlexic, who are then able to pull all of these books together, because obviously they are possessed by the great race of Yif or are uh, aliens on Earth. And it's some way of identifying uh, people with the uh, inhuman DNA and capabilities that they then uh, want to take and either, you know, capture them, put them in blenders, uh, eat their essence, ally with them, whatever sort of uh, sinister uh, thing it is. But it's a great sort of uh, twist and opportunity for political commentary to move from the uh, seemingly bland and corporate and sort of teacherly face of, of Evelyn Wood into what eldritch horror lurks uh, between the words uh, when you uh, read them in an S pattern really, really quickly. Or in a, a strong Boston accent, if you're Ted Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, he never, I don't think he ever satisfied uh, Jack that he had uh, quickly learned to assimilate all of these uh, books that he was supposed to read. Although the, the notion of um, having these courses that have reached, you know, an awful lot of senators is, is pretty great too. If you're talking about, you know, subversive 
mind control methodology. Another uh, 60s overlap could be if, you know, normally, uh, like you say, it's just a scam or at best it opens up uh, latent hyperlexia. But what if you're an MK Ultra? patient or or subject and you've been dosed with a specific cocktail of mind-altering drugs and you uh hit a a book uh, pregnant with occult meaning then maybe you are the holodeck or you're the holodeck and you're projecting that fire or those um uh uh, alien entities out in the world you become a, a gateway and uh, you can open up the doors to carcosa or rilia or wherever uh, depending on what you read. If you're an alien and you want to lobby members of Congress to, I don't know, become enemies of NASA, mm-hmm. you just slip them the, the reading material that has the uh, the subliminal messaging, speaking of another scam <laughs> mm-hmm. in them, and uh, you, you can you can program your senators and uh, other... Uh, this was uh, very popular with business leaders. Uh, you could get your company to pay for it. Uh, in Canada, it was treated as a legit form of education that you could deduct from your taxes. It was primarily men who uh, took the courses, so it could definitely be an influence operation on you know the the middle management elite of of America. Yeah, it's um it it makes a great uh, sort of seeming as you say a seemingly nonsensical connection uh, between a bunch of phenomena that then take on a meeting once you've sort of. Uh, what do I want to say? Grasp the gestalt of what's going on. Yeah. And it's its first mention and promotion in, in nationwide print was in a UFO newsletter. So uh, there was definitely that intersection between self-improvement and sort of uh, what would later become, you know, transcending humanity uh, in this uh, very simple series of very expensive classes that um, made a lot of money for people over a period of many decades. And I think it's time for us to uh, close up. Our books, having read the equivalent of uh, 500,000 words of elliptonic truth, and uh, see uh, what happens when we woozily walk to our final segment. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%. To the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt. From the abusive warrens of the Internet. To the lonely chambers of every human heart. From the toxic legacy of the Cold War. To the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green The Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The tastefully appointed interiors, the Chopin being played live on a concert grand, the impertinent wines that we are sipping, and the uh, guest book that we signed on the way in tell us that we are once more in that oh-so-refined of huts, the culture hut, where we're going to talk about can a forgotten pioneer of American photography, but since this is in our final segment of the show where things often get eldritch, can I think this photographer just might be Eldritch, because his name is William H. 
Mortensen, and he overlaps all sorts of different eras of Cthulhu gaming. He does. Born in 1897 in Utah, grows up, is taught. More Utah. Yeah, more Utah. <laughs> it's an all Utah episode. If only we'd, if we'd, if we'd done Pretend Salt Lake City at the top of the episode, then we'd really be talking. And, and all the great horror movies that came the, out of Utah. The horror movies of and around Utah. Um, the Utah Chainsaw Massacre. Watch it today. Uh, in which the massacre is that people come and help you saw down that stubborn stump on your property because everyone is nice in Utah. Where the heck were we? William H. Mortensen, born in Utah, uh, educated by a art teacher at uh, his high school, James Taylor Harwood, who attended the Academy Julian and the Beaux-Arts at the same time as Robert W. Chambers. So there's your first Yellow King tie-in of the day, or not of the day, of the segment. He leaves the army in 1918, decides to stay in New York City instead of go to Utah again, goes to the Art Students League of New York City, where Chambers had studied way back in the 1880s, and studies under another guy who knew Chambers, George Bridgman. And then, for no reason that anyone can explain, suddenly went to Greece in 1920, discovered he had suddenly gone to Greece in 1920 without any money, and after a lengthy three-way correspondence between him, his father back in Utah, and the American consul in Athens, was put on a ship and sent back to Utah. I'm going to guess that Pan uh, had something to do with that. Pan said he'd be able to crash on his couch. And we all know what happens when you accept invitations from Pan. Exactly. Yep. It's not a good look. But for whatever reason, he comes back to Utah, teaches art himself. And uh, because he'd met a movie star while he was in the army, he had a friend in Hollywood. And in 1921, he decides to go to Hollywood himself. In his later mythography, he rode a motorcycle to Hollywood, according to the woman he was with. They took the train and he bought the motorcycle when he got to Hollywood. That woman was Faye Ray at age 14. She was allowed to go to Hollywood with an art teacher, a high school art teacher, because her mom thought that he was engaged to her sister. This turns out to have been a big misunderstanding. But as far as we know, William H. Mortensen does not debauch Faye Ray. He, in fact, does his level best to prevent her from being debauched while himself working for King Vidor and Cecil B. DeMille, among other people, first as a matte painter then in costume and uh, mask design, and then finally as a still photographer for DeMille, and he works on DeMille's Silent Ten Commandments and The King of Kings and takes pictures from them, and from DeMille absorbs the three keys to getting people to pay attention to your art, which uh, DeMille says are sex, sentiment, and religion, and which... <laughs> that that DeMille was accurately describing the, the DeMille aesthetic, for it, sure. It very much was. And uh, Mortensen, being uh, not particularly religious, changes it to sex, sentiment, and wonder. And uh, in the pursuit of wonder, works with uh, Lon Chaney Sr. on uh, a couple of uh, well-forgotten films, Mr. Wu and uh, West of Zanzibar. And by the time he is done working with Lon Chaney, he has basically mastered photography as it is practiced in the 20s and his career, uh, his side hustle of taking pictures of Hollywood stars has blown up. He is getting printed in Vanity Fair and Collier's. He's taking pictures for studios. He's taking pictures for wannabe actresses and uh, sending them on uh, doing headshots. And so he opens up a big photo studio, and while in between taking pictures of starlets, he begins to experiment with how to take the pictures. And so he 
engages in what we would recognize now as just Photoshop. He manipulates his photos. He changes the lighting and development. He scratches the print up with razor blades. He adds and composites things. He it was builds. a lot harder before there were computers. It was a lot more manual effort. It was way harder before there were computers. He builds what he calls a creative pictorialism into his uh, watchword and his pictures show tableaus of Renaissance scenes. They show increasingly grotesque horrors. Uh, that's his uh, uh, takeaway from Wonder. And they show uh, unclothed ladies. And it is the unclothed ladies, among them Gene Harlow, that get him in trouble with his wife. And he uh, gets a divorce and moves to Laguna Beach ahead of a scandal in which Fay Ray's husband is like, you did what with a whom? And uh, so he scampers off to Laguna Beach. He stays in the scene and begins to buckle down and focus entirely on his photographs, including a pictorial history of witchcraft and demonology, uh, which at one point reaches possibly 150 images, of which only 100 are known to exist today. He publishes books, most famously Monsters and Madonnas, in which the monster is the, the camera and the Madonna is the image that you wish to produce. Uh, that's made in 1934. And uh, The Command to Look, which is about the psychology of picture design in which he explicates uh, sex, sentiment, and uh, wonder. And then also describes the shapes that draw the eye. So uh, jagged lines, uh, sinuous S-curves, triangles are scary, and what he calls the dominant mass, which is a hulking figure in the middle of the, of the, of the shot. And he says all of these awaken primitive fear instincts. He sounds very much like Lovecraft when he's talking about core elements of a photograph that works. And uh, as Lovecraft would say, the strongest emotion is fear. Mortensen would agree completely. And he says, these are images that we fear subconsciously, which means they make us look at the picture. And even if the picture itself is a picture of a lovely naked lady, and it's very firmly in sex and sentiment, you're still using the geometries of horror to underlie them. Right. And he has an, an occult pal. Uh, yeah. He's operating in uh, L.A. in the area in the 30s. And therefore, he uh, buddies up to uh, Manly Hall, uh, who we've talked about before. He has a uh, an amazing modernistic Aztec occult center in LA and uh, tell people a bit more about Hall. Uh, Manly Hall is a Canadian occultist. He is a Rosicrucian, but the fun kind that involves looking up things and claiming they're all Rosicrucian. He publishes a giant coffee table book called The Secret uh, Teachings of All Ages, which becomes a uh, bestseller is probably st uh, strong, but it, it sells very well and shows up on a lot of people's coffee tables. His author photograph was taken by William H. Mortensen. They are buddies and they both believe in the sort of the underlying truths of art. And uh, Hall is happy to give his advice on the pictorial history of witchcraft and demonology. They stay uh, friends up until Mortensen pretty much stops working on it around 1935, 1936. Manley Hall has a uh, sort of a guru community around him of theosophists. Similarly, Mortensen develops a, a guru type personality around his school of photography that he runs in uh, Laguna Beach. So they've, they've got a lot going on in, in common and at least for a decade or so fairly close associates as uh uh, William H. Warnson pops in to borrow a book to uh, look at pictures of demons so that he can take pictures of demons for his photographs. You need reference. You need reference, people. But all this demonry gets him in trouble with our boy Ansel Adams, who believes none of that is photography. 
photography is setting up your camera and clicking on the world. You take a picture of the world as it exists. You don't monkey around with people in ape costumes. And if a lady is naked, she should be naked in a very blunt and straightforward way. Photography is about recording an image and nothing more. And Ansel Adams is a young buck with bones to make. So he picks a fight with Mortensen. Mortensen picks absolutely right back. It is not a one-sided war that is uh, fought in the pages of Camera Craft and other uh, major photography magazines of the time. And Mortensen's willingness to fight back drives Adams berserk. He (laughs) wishes for his death in print. Um, He says, I looked at Mortensen's pictures of corpses, hoping that one would be Mortensen, that kind of thing. He calls him the Antichrist and the Devil. And then once Ansel Adams takes over the photography establishment, the art photography establishment begins to blacklist Mortensen and refuse to show his photographs at a museum that is exhibiting Mortensen. And so he starts driving Mortensen to the fringes of the art form. His acolytes, who are all writing histories of photography, start leaving Mortensen out of them. And so Mortensen, by the time he dies in 1965, is no longer fashionable. His- yes, if you know the history of photography, you know one of these names, and it's <laughs> not William Martin- Mortensen. Right. Uh, Mortensen is no longer fashionable. His uh, school is basically down to a trickle of students, not a flood. He is unable to interest anyone in his old art and Adams uh, basically dances on his grave. But good news, a young impresario photographer and art type in San Francisco named, well, not named at the time Anton LaVey, but who eventually becomes named Anton LaVey reads the command to look and says, this is just what I need to make Satan sell sex, (laughs) sentiment and wonder. I've got it. And when you read uh, his book, the satanic witch, It is full of advice on using sex, sentiment, and wonder to sell Satan and to sell yourself as a powerful Satanist figure. LaVey straight up worships Mortensen. He dedicates uh, the Satanic Bible to Mortensen, along with a number of other uh, thinkers and art figures that he admires. And he uses Mortensen's principles basically both to set up Satanic rituals, to uh, do what he calls the lesser magic, which is conning people into thinking you're a, a Satan worshiper. And also as good old American hucksters as, as a cell text, um, LaVey is a big fan of Mortensen. And so Mortensen stays in the underground counterculture bloodstream, which would have probably surprised William Mortensen, who of course was a figure of the establishment in the thirties and then emerges as historians of photography who come after Ansel Adams say, we need to overturn the history of photography or else we won't have theses and discover that this guy, William H. Mortensen, was a gigantic figure and that his whole school of art was made nacal, tourney and unpersoned by Ansel. Right. And also photographers by the 70s and 80s have photographed waterfalls and mountains in all the ways they possibly can. <laughs> and there's a revival of the pictorial tradition where there are staged things going on in uh, photographs and increasingly these days in giant large format photographs. So Mortensen is sort of a precursor of people like uh, Cindy Sherman and particularly with the grotesque element, uh, Matthew Barney. There's a lot of early uh, Mortensen in Matthew Barney. Yeah. um, He's, and of course now that everyone who takes pictures alters the filter and messes with it before they do anything, we're all of us, William H. Mortensen, when we're saying, uh, no, let's just blur out the background and just show the cat. That's uh, that's William H. Mortensen coming back and saying, absolutely, the cat is the dominant mass and it's sentiment. Good for you. Well done. Right. So uh, scenario wise, 
the three word scenario, of course, is Pikmin's photographic model. Mm-hmm. You can just do a scenario where he's photographing a ghoul or a, uh, a Bayaki or uh, uh, what have you. And that's, uh, you know, your photographer has mysteriously stopped uh, shooting anything uh, like his old work and has uh, decided to turn his back on it. And you're hired by uh, his agent or, or whatever it is to find out what happened. Another one is, you know, is Ansel Adams working for the Armitage uh, in- inquiry? Uh, that's that's another uh, option. And I think you've thought of some uh, ideas for the late 60s revival that you could put into the fall of Delta Green after he passes. Yeah, in, uh, I, I touch on them in a column on the Pell Grain website, but the notion being that Mortensen's sudden turn away from the grotesque in the late 1930s argues that he maybe had a bad experience, that whatever he learned in Greece had allowed him to take uh, photographs of, of genuine monsters and that sometime in the late 1930s or prime trail of Cthulhu territory, he stops, but that he keeps the negatives and then makes one last folio of, of prints as he has become bitter and impoverished. And it is that folio that has gone missing and that the Delta Green agents have to hunt down in the Hollywood slash satanic underground of uh, the 1960s, which is a great uh, venue. Manly P. Hall is still alive. He's very grumbly and angry. Mortensen's friend, collaborator, and model, George Dunham, is still alive. He's in quiet uh, retirement with his uh, boyfriend, Corona Del Mar, but maybe you could uncover him. Um, you've got the the widow, uh, Meredith, who is being scammed out of Mortensen's prints by a guy named O. Howard Lucy, who used to be business manager for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and O. Howard Lucy's collaborator, Jacques Delangre, who is a lecturer on alternative healing and an enthusiast for the magical powers of sea salt. So uh, Jacques Delangre, being a, 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 a mysterious Belgian with an occult bent, is no doubt also uh, heavily tied up in the missing Mortensen file. You've got a lot of characters going on, is what I'm saying. And if instead you want to do the 1930s adventure in which, as you say, Mortensen is taking pictures of Bayaki and ghouls and whatnot, uh, who better to hang out with than psychic investigator Hereward Carrington, who uh, dies in 1958, but in the 1930s is still out there getting it done and was also a collector of Mortensen's uh, grotesques, as it turns out. So you've got all manner of, of doors into adventure from uh, Mortensen. Plus, just looking at the pictures, uh, Feral House did a reprint of The Command to Look, and it did a big collection called American Grotesque of his work that uh, can be got with not a lot of trouble on the internet. And they're well worth looking at just themselves as as images and of sort of the uh, what was possible in terms of creepy images of the 20s and 30s. And maybe one of those will inspire you. There's a sort of a, a person who's covered in collodion makeup called Belphegor, uh, given the name of a demon. And uh, there's all manner of stories in that is that if Mortensen is building up demons on his models, what does that do? Does that, you know, does, does the, the camera rather than, you know, taking the guy's soul, what does it replace it with? Possibly Belphegor. Who can say? Right. And of course, uh, the mythos version of uh, 30s L.A., uh, is to be found in Cthulhu Confidential. You can uh, take my gumshoe one-to-one detective uh, Dex Raymond on a mission to uh, figure out what's up with uh, Mortensen and uh, Hall and all the people around him. And uh, again, maybe find out you know what uh, Ansel Adams is 
is really up to. And uh, anyway, we'll be back uh, next week to uh, find out what a whole bunch of other people are uh, really up to on this year podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast darkroom light lit by joining Argent Backers. Andrew Cowie. Anton Kulikoff. Carrie Shoetrick. Christopher Hattie. And Dave Choate. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Comment on your Zoom workplace as our reluctant Phoenix says, oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>